The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning. Thank you for uh, joining us on this holiday weekend. If you didn't notice on the way in, we are taking communion at the end of the service. And so if, if you don't want to get up at the end and, and move around the sanctuary, now might be a good time to go and pick up the communion elements if you didn't get a chance to on the way in. I also want to tell you, I, I really enjoyed kind of the, the acoustic set that we had going on here, but I, I want to share with you a praise report. Our drummer over here, Gary, who's often here, and his wife, Lisa, who works with King's Kids and and helps us in our office. Um, We've been praying for a long time that their immigration status would be approved for them to stay here longer. And it looked like it was pretty dicey. It's something we've been praying about. They went back to England, and they're actually from Northern Ireland this week, and they got approved for three more years here with us. So we praise God for that. So you're just going to have to get used to having Gary and Lisa around for a while, and it'll be fine. Um, today, I, I invite you to turn in the Gospels to Mark chapter 15. If you brought two or three Bibles with you, that would also be helpful because we're going to be in John chapter 18, John chapter 19. We might look a little bit at Luke. We're going to look a little bit at Matthew 27. So try to keep up. And I have an outline there with you to, to walk through it. And as we go through these scriptures, you're going to notice that, that I might mention details that you don't see in front of you in Mark chapter 15. And um, they are most likely from John chapter 18 or 19. I'll try to, to inform you of where I'm reading so that the, the slide team can keep up. But it's, um, there's a lot of scriptures here. And they speak a lot about this interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. As you turn to Mark chapter 15, what we remember from last week is that on this day, the sun is beginning to timidly rise on the worst day in human history. Today on a cold spring morning, Jesus, the savior of the world, he is tied up. He is waiting in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, to be handed over to cruel men who will kill him. How did we get here? How did we get here to this moment. I want you to recall with me the scene from Mark chapter 14 from last week. Jesus in an illegal nighttime hearing before the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of Israel, he's been pressed to incriminate himself. They're trying to get him to admit to a capital charge uh, according to their Jewish law, which would be blasphemy, claiming that he is equal with God. And then they also want to incriminate him for a capital crime against the Roman authorities. They're trying to prove that he is treasonous, that he is a rebel, that he is a would-be king in opposition to Rome. And despite the hearing being full of lies and contradictory testimony, this proceeding ends, you remember, in a violent frenzy. A violent frenzy as Jesus looks the high priest in the eye and he tells him, I am the Christ. I am the son of the blessed. He says, I am, in response to the high priest's question. And then he says, he says, I am the son of man. Come from, he's come, saying, I'm come from the throne room of the most high God, the ancient of days. And he's referring to this passage in Daniel 7, where it says the ancient of days is coming to bring judgment upon the earth against the sin of the world. But what the council doesn't understand is that Jesus came, though sinless, to judge sin by taking our judgment upon himself. On the cross, he will take our judgment. And so Jesus speaks boldly, declaring his deity. And in that moment, everyone hears what he's saying. He's making himself equal with God. He's declaring his deity. And remember that the council erupts. They start attacking him. They start punching him in the face. They start spitting on Jesus. They cover up his head and and they strike him again and again and, and, and mock him and say, prophesy, who is it that is punching you right now? And then they throw him over to sadistic guards who it says in scripture, receive him with blows. I mentioned last week 
the, the isolation of Jesus in this moment, that not one person in that room came to his defense. Not one stood up for his cause. Not one went to, to speak on behalf of Jesus. And what's even sadder about this to me is, as we really think about this is that Jesus did have followers within that council. There were people within that council who, who, who claimed to be followers, some timidly like Nicodemus, who didn't like to make his, his uh, discipleship of Jesus known. There's Joseph of Arimathea, who, who we'll see in the following weeks was a disciple of Jesus and a member of the Sanhedrin. And here in this moment, as, as Jesus is being lied about, accused, and then attacked brutally, they shrink back into the shadows. Maybe out of crippling fear, maybe, maybe out of self-preservation, these men shrink to the background as Jesus is brutalized. Now, I wonder what it would be like to be in that room. I've been thinking about that. If I were in that room, what would I do? I know the dialogue that would be going on in my head. Even if I believed in, in Jesus' message, I'd be saying, I'd be saying I, I, I'm worried about my own safety, of course. I have a family to think about. I, I need to, to prioritize their well-being. I am in no position to stand up to a mob. And, and I think in a lot of senses, that's true. It would have been futile for these men to stand in the way of this attack. But I think what we see in this is that true darkness, when we come face to face with true darkness, can we admit it is frightening? It is overwhelming. And in the Sanhedrin, the light is retreating as the darkness advances toward Jesus with one aim, to overcome him. John 1, 9 says this, it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's who Jesus is. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus is alone, he's abandoned, his friends have scattered, he's been beaten, he's been subjected to the will of this, this mob. Yet John 1, 5 tells us that why we can have hope even in the midst of that. Even in the midst of these dark circumstances, as, as Jesus is, is under this pressure, it says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is able to say this in retrospect, seeing what happens next, but, but we have to admit that as this day is progressing, like I said, the worst day in human history, the darkness is increasing. It says this in Luke 15, excuse me, Mark 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. See, this council, they are the rulers of Israel. They are in charge of, of keeping the laws, certainly the religious laws. They have some measure of authority, but they've actually been stripped of their authority to, to carry out executions. They're not allowed to do this. This is left to the Romans. And so what they do is they get together and they put their heads together and they say, what is the case that we're going to actually present before the governor? See, up in Galilee, where Jesus is from, one of the sons of Herod is still in charge. This Jewish politician, he's in charge of the area. But down in Judea, in Jerusalem, where Jesus is today, there is a different ruler in charge because Herod the Great put in, in place one of his other sons, Archelaus, who was a terrible king, who did not last very long at all. He was a brutal, violent uh, person. And so he was removed from power. And Rome sends in this governor, Pilate. He is going to lay down the law. He's going to bring in his troops. He's going to set things right. And so they are bringing this 
in this case, to Pontius Pilate, this Roman Gentile governor of the region of Judea. This is just an aside here, but throughout history, there have been critics of, of Christianity, even people who claim to be Christians, especially in the 20th century. And they would, they would take the scriptures and they'd look at them and they'd say, well, some of this is helpful. This gives us helpful ethics. This gives us stuff we can, can live by, but the historicity of it is not terribly accurate and the miraculous nature of it, we, we should discard a lot of that. And so these, these theologians claiming to, to be believers in God and in, in Christ, they strip Jesus of his miraculous power and they look at, at some of the, the, what they call inconsistencies in scripture and they say, well, this isn't historically accurate. This Pontius Pilate character is one that came under attack in the 20th century, early 20th century. They, they'd say that there is no historical evidence to back up the New Testament account that anyone named Pontius Pilate was ever governor in Judea. Say this, this is made up. Maybe Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions this, but there's no physical evidence other than these writings that have been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten that this person ever existed. That is until 1961, when a block of carved limestone from the first century with a partially intact inscription was found referring to Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea at an archaeological site in uh, Caesarea Maritima, this, this beautiful coastal city where the governor would stay year-round and occasionally go into Jerusalem when he needed to. He, he is now confirmed, and this is what often happens in Scripture. Scripture is what we can compare to history and to archaeology, and, and this is so often proved to be true by what people discover. Have you noticed that? And it's really incredible. And, and, and so he's not often in Jerusalem, this pilot character. He's on the Mediterranean coast. Who can blame him? But after a string of recent insurrection attempts, he's sent into town. This, the city is swelling with thousands of visitors. Remember, this is Passover. So tens of thousands of people are coming in to worship. And if there was ever going to be a time for revolution, that would be the time. People are there that are anti-Roman. They, they hate this oppressive government that has taken them over. There are very free-spirited people that, that wants to be free from this oppression. And so Pilate comes into the city and he brings with him 600 additional soldiers. And you can picture this. You've been in Washington, D.C. when it's tense, or maybe you've heard about it. Some of you, you work in jobs where this is your responsibility. And so picture it. The barriers are going up. The soldiers are out in full force. The, the police are on, on high alert. And the governor, Pilate, is in command to keep the peace, staying in a, a fortress adjacent to the Temple Mount. This is the timing of God. We think about these things, and, and Jesus could have been arrested in a, a dozen other times. He could have been placed in prison so many other times, but unlike those other times, his arrest comes on one of the, the rare and frequent days in which one who actually has the authority to execute him is in town. And you could think, well, well, that's just the way uh, the Jewish people timed this. This is the way they wanted it. To, the, those that were against Jesus, they timed it so that Pilate would be in town so they could carry this out. But what we see is, no, no, this is according to the, the plan and foreknowledge of God that he set this in motion. Jesus is not out of control in all this. He knows what's coming for him. And this is his definite plan. This is the definite plan of God the Father in perfect unity with the Son to give us a way of redemption. So in the morning, the chief priests consult with the elders and the scribes. They, they get together and they clarify their charges against him. They say he wants to tear down the temple. He's a rebel. He claims to be king of the Jews. He is certainly someone who is in opposition to Caesar because blasphemy, bringing a charge of blasphemy before Pilate, he'd be like, who cares? This guy says he's the son of God. I don't believe in God. 
This guy sounds like a, a, a madman, but certainly not a threat to, to Rome. He, he looks at these religious figures, and to him, they're just a bunch of backwater religious guys that, that have uh, strange beliefs. They need something more. They need something more in order to accuse Jesus and condemn Jesus. And so they formalize their charges and they bring him to the governor. And so picture it, it's a cold morning, spring morning. They walk up to the door of his fortress. They bang on the door, but they don't dare go in because to go into this this home of a Gentile would defile them. And they wanna make sure they can enjoy the the celebration of of Passover. So Pilate, he, he steps to the door the door is open before him and Pilate, perhaps rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, steps into the cold morning air and he finds this mob waiting for him. Not a good start to his day. And in the middle of them is a bruised and beaten, shackled man. And his first response in John 18, it gives us a little more context. So let's look at John 18, starting in verse 28. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. This is a strange response. They're like, obviously we're here because he's done something bad. Isn't that enough? No, (laughs) that's ridiculous. So Pilate demands a response. Pilate actually is not very interested in this, what we see in his response. He says, Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Deal with it yourselves, uh, away from here. And then the Jews respond to him. This is when the ante's up. He doesn't really know what's at stake yet. They say to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Suddenly, Pilate understands the seriousness of this. He, he understands that this is more than just some petty religious dispute. And it says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus will die from crucifixion. Jesus will die by hanging from a tree, becoming accursed, according to the scriptures, to take the curse of sin upon himself in a way in which the Jewish people could never have executed him. It would have been against their law. They would have never done it this way. But in in fulfillment of the scriptures, he's handed over to Gentiles to fulfill this prophecy. And so they present their charges to him and and no doubt a little bit better than they had the previous evening. They say he's an, an insurrectionist, that he's a terrorist who wants to destroy the temple, that he's a traitor against Rome, that he's claiming to be king in opposition to, to Caesar, the supreme ruler of Rome. And Pilate hears all the evidence presented. And, and as I hear, as I, as I imagine the scene, I see Pilate somewhat disinterested in all this religious drama. Yet as he looks at Jesus and he, he hears the, the violent words against Jesus, as he sees the anger and the vitriol towards Jesus, he can't help but think there's something profoundly unusual and captivating about this man. Watch this. Verse two says in, in Mark chapter 15, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? So he, he silences everyone else and he asks Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. You have said so. This may strike us as a a strange response from Jesus, but according to Matthew's gospel, this is now the third time that Jesus uses this little phrase. Uh, The first time is this. Judas asks him, Lord, is it I that will betray you? Is it I? And he says, you have said so. The chief priest pressed Jesus, are you the Christ? And he responds, you have said so. 
And now Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And he responds once more, you have said so. What does Jesus mean by this? It's a strange phrase, right? But actually this was a a common phrase in the Greek. It's a a, a phrase that basically means you've answered your own question. The answer to your question is in what you asked. It's a Greek literary device to show that the one asking the question has unintentionally or unknowingly provided the answer within the question they're asking. In other words, whether they're able to admit it or not, whether they're willing to admit it or not, those that are asking the question already know the answer. You might try this phrase and and mirror it back to someone else. My wife will occasionally do this. She'll she'll say something like, we're running behind schedule today. Should we just get Chick-fil-A for dinner? Right, in her question, she's revealing what she already knows, yes. And what she already believes, Yes, we should get Chick-fil-A for dinner. There's a lot of suggestion there in the question. And and the great irony here in this passage and what Jesus is gently revealing is that his enemies, they recognize him for who he is. They know who he is. He's he's forcing them to look inward and, and to consider who is this Jesus. They know often before his followers do. And the very reason they hate him is because of what they know is true about him. This they cannot stand that he is the Christ, that he is the king, and that by being Christ and king, he has claims on their lives. He has authority over them that they are unwilling to give. But by staying silent and not giving the clear answer that Pilate demands, this is what I love about this. Pilate asks this question and he says, you have said so. And suddenly this forces Pilate to look inward at himself and to turn the question to himself. Is this man standing before me a king? Is he a king? Verse three, and the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. I don't know what his amazement was. There was probably some measure of an annoyance in it, but he's wondering at this man standing before him. Apparently that one phrase by Jesus, that's enough. That's all he wants to say. He has said enough. And in the silence of Jesus, we're going to see Pilate immediately start to want to backtrack this whole thing. Throughout the next several verses, he is going to, to be trying to get out of this. He does not want to be responsible for the death of this man. So John 18 tells us that Pilate, desiring to get away from the crowd, to, to have a private conversation with Jesus, he leads Jesus inside. The guards bring him in and, and the rest will not follow into this Gentile's home. And so he gets to have a discussion with Jesus away from the frenzied mob. This is John 18, starting in verse 33. So, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, you hear his exasperation, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's saying, am I king? No. Am I king? Yes. More than you know. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? 
Could there be a, a more timeless question than that? What is truth? We live in an age, we live in an era in which nobody seems to know. Nobody seems to have a, a clear and convincing answer to this. So we're told things like, follow your heart. Which if I follow my heart, it's not a good thing. There's a lot going on in there. When I submit my heart to the word of God, that, that's different. But we're told, follow your heart. Trust your gut. Live your truth. And let others do the same. And we have a culture and a world which, can we admit, we are increasingly seeing the devastating effects of people pursuing their truth apart from some kind of objective reality, untethered from the reality of God's word. I said this last week, but your answer to this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the most significant question you can ask or answer because it will give you, if the answer is he is the son of God, it gives you a clear and objective reality. You know where you came from. You have a basis for your morality. You have meaning to your life and you have confidence. You can have confidence in your destiny, a life beyond this. But apart from this objective reality that, that is revealed in Christ, revealed in God's word, what do we have? What do we have confidence in? What, what can we trust? And the great irony of Pilate's question here, what is truth? Is that that's his job to determine. He's supposed to take in the evidence and he's supposed to rule upon the truth. And yet he, in this moment, he, he dismisses the notion of objective reality. To him, this is, this is vain philosophy. They're just wasting their time. And yet the answer is standing right in front of him. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. This morning, you, you might not be committed to Jesus just yet. You not, might not be all in, but don't miss what Pilate is missing here. Truth is not found in philosophy. It's not found in, in a worldview. It is found in the person and the words and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. And as a church, that's what we're going to proclaim. As God willing, that's what we will proclaim to the end of our days. We will preach and proclaim Christ because he is the truth. And Pilate, he, he's missing this. And he believes that, that this human search for truth and objective reality, it's just abstract. It's aimless. Certainly not a threat to Rome. To him, this is not a big deal. We're just having debates about truth. I'm not interested in killing you for that. And so he has no desire to have Jesus put to death. It says this in John 18, 38. After he had said this, Pilate goes back outside and he looks in the face of this crowd that's standing before him and he says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate wants to exonerate Jesus. He wants to set him free. But when he opens that door and he sees the faces of those gathered around him once more, he sees a crowd increasing in number and increasing in tense vitriol against Jesus. The pressure has increased. The temperature has gone up. And so at the suggestion of some in the crowd, he actually comes up with an idea. He says, I'm not just going to be able to dismiss this. I can't just say, set him free. So I am going to give them a choice. And they'll get to weigh in on this matter. It says in Mark 15, 6, now at the feast, that is the feast of Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. He has this privilege in his office as governor, very similar to the, the president, being able to pardon people. Well, when they've been convicted of something and they've usually shown some kind of level of contrition, he can pardon them. In this case, what, what Pilate would do is when things were extremely tense in Jerusalem during these high feasts and festivals, he would look for ways to please the crowds, to placate the crowds, to, to set them at ease. And so one of the ways he would do that is during these feasts, he would show that he has authority and he has power and that he's benevolent by setting free someone that they desire to be set free. 
uh, perhaps someone who, who had spoken out against Rome, someone who had committed some kind of crime. And so, so Pilate, seeing this opportunity, he says, here I have Jesus tied up, beaten and bruised, who seems to just be some kind of strange holy man, who doesn't seem to have actually done anything that they're accusing him of. He's very shrewd. He sees, he sees the envy of these religious leaders. Here on the one hand, we have Jesus. Now, what can I place in contrast to Jesus? And so he pulls out from the prison the vilest of all criminals within his possession, a man named Barabbas. Barabbas, uh, the one who is called separately in Scripture a, a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. So you see the contrast. Who would the crowds choose? Certainly, they're not going to set free Barabbas. There could not be a more stark contrast. And here's, here's one of the, the additional ironies in this passage, and it's full of them. This man, Barabbas, his name means son of the father. Son of the father. So on the one hand, you have the true son of the father, the son of the living God standing there. And on the other hand, you have this murderer, this insurrectionist who bears this false name, son of the father. And among the prisoners, the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate as he usually did for them. John tells us that Pilate steps out in front of the crowd, which has now increased in number, and he shouts over the din of the crowd, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You can hear he's, he's dripping with some mockery right now. The, the king of the Jews, he's not very serious. He wants to make an example out of Jesus as this, this threat that is no threat to him. Mark 15, 9. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for them the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. John 18.40 says, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas wishing to satisfy the crowd. What a devastating phrase that is. Pilate knows he's innocent. He knows he's good. He knows his death is injustice, yet wishing to satisfy the mob, the crowd, he bows to their wishes. I know there's an application to our hearts in that, isn't there? But he's not done yet. He's still trying to get out of this. So what if instead of executing him, what if he just punishes him publicly and then he can release him? It says in John 19, 1, then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. So he, he takes him aside from the crowd. His soldiers carry him off to a, a, another place. They tie him to a post and they expose his back and they whip him over and over again, 39 times until he is nearly unrecognizable from the, the blows against his back and his legs. And then it says, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe and they came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. They make him a mockery. They're, they're making an example out of him with this purple robe, this symbol of royalty. They're saying, this is a king. This is what it looks like for someone to rise up as a king against Rome. This is nothing to us. 
And so they, they mock him, they strike him, they, they bring him out in front of the crowds and Pilate then goes out and it says, he went out again and said to them, this is verse four of John 19, see, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He's hoping they're satisfied by this. Is this mockery? Is this whipping enough to satisfy the crowds? And Jesus comes out and says, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. Here in this utter show of humiliation, Pilate cruelly parades Jesus out in front of the crowd so they can see his utter weakness. They can see the scars from the whips. They can see that he is bloodied, that he is no threat anymore. And perhaps now they will relent. Perhaps now Pilate can get out of this, but the crowd increases in anger increases in passion against Jesus when they see him utterly broken before them in a mocking robe and crown of thorns they shout all the louder when the chief priests and officers saw him they cried out now it's a chance everyone crying together crucify him crucify him crucify him Pilate said to them take him yourselves and crucify him I find no guilt in him the Jews answered him we have a law And according to that law, he ought to die. Pilate hasn't realized this yet. It says he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. You see now, something turning in Pilate. You see the wheels turning in his head. He's he's realizing his error. Who has he been mocking? Who has he been beating? Who has he been whipping? Who is this Jesus that's been standing in front of them? Is this more than a man? Who is this? John 19, 9, it says, he entered his headquarters. He brings him back inside again and you, you can hear and, and feel the fear in his voice, the intensity in his voice as he says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you? an authority to crucify you. He's saying, all the power is in my hands. Jesus, look at me. I could set you free. I have authority. I have power. I'm in charge here. Or I could squash you like a bug. And you're not gonna answer me. Do you realize what's at stake? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There's some mercy toward Pilate in what Jesus is saying here. He's saying something, something really profound here. This is, this is the, the whole discussion of predestination and, and free will, God's sovereignty and man's choice, all wrapped into a couple of sentences here. He says, you don't have any authority except what has been given you by God, by, by God's sovereign will. And yet he says, but there are others that are responsible for this. The ones standing outside are responsible for this. Isn't that interesting? That, that God's sovereignly in control of all of this. That he is moving the pieces to accomplish his will and his purpose. And yet, man is responsible. In Acts chapter two, as Peter stands up at Pentecost, he preaches the same thing. He says, this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says that, that they are responsible for their wickedness in killing the Savior. Pilate then, full of fear, turned outwards as anger. He says to Jesus, don't you know who I am? And it's as if Jesus looks him in the eye and this is the courage and the authority and the power of our Lord. He looks him dead in the eyes and it's as if he says, do you know who I am? 
do you know who I am? In, in the midst of this, we see in, in Luke's gospel, Pilate's wife comes and appeals to him. And she says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Get out of this because I've been tormented all night in my dreams because of this man. She's been having nightmares about this moment. And she appeals to him and it says, then from then on, Pilate sought to release him. He's trying to, to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. It's around noon. And he says to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them oh, one last time, shall I crucify your king? And listen to the response. These are the, the religious leaders of the people. These are the people that are supposed to be leading the Jewish people in worship of God Almighty. And their response is this. We have no king but Caesar. This is godless religion. This, this is evil and darkness triumphing, at least nearing their triumph. And Matthew 27, 24 says that when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And, and the crowd, they cry out in response to this, let the blood be on our heads and on our children. Utter darkness. Utter darkness. Jesus then, it says in verse 16, it says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Jesus will be taken out as a lamb to the slaughter. He will bear a rough sawn wooden beam on his back. He will bear the instrument of his own execution. And he will carry it to a hill, not because of Pilate, not because of, of the will of a governor or even the will of a mob, but because of the definite plan of God. Jesus will go willingly to die in the place of sinners. Peter sums this up as best he can in 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. We can only speculate on, on what happened with Pilate next. What, what kind of torment he went through in his mind over this day for the years to come. How this would have sat in his mind forever. How do you shake this? This innocent Jesus, under your authority, you've just bowed to a mob and this innocent Jesus is being taken to be crucified. This would have been the darkest day in his life. And yet, what I hope and what I pray is that he saw the grace of Jesus and even Pilate believed. This is my hope. I don't know. I don't know what was actually going on in, in his heart that's between him and God. But what we see next is that as Jesus is, lay, is led out of the city and crucified on a hill, that they place a sign above his head at the command of Pilate that says, the king of the Jews. And they say, take that down. And he says, no, I will not. No, I will not take that down. I've written what I've written. Pilate, in some sense, on some level, believes this. And we can only speculate on what happened next. But, but what I see in him and what I hope for in him is that he saw the grace of his Lord. He saw the mercy toward him that Jesus expressed and that he turned. We don't know. But have you ever wondered also what happened to Barabbas? Barabbas, have you ever wondered what became of him? Scripture doesn't tell us. But what we know is that that morning, that good morning, some 2,000 years ago, that good Friday, 
that three crosses were prepared. Three. Jesus will hang with two criminals, two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Barabbas was a robber, a murderer, a violent insurrectionist against Rome. And on that Good Friday morning, over no, no doubt a sleepless night awaiting his own execution, he's pulled from a cell by Roman soldiers. He's paraded out in front of a crowd who is shouting violently. And no doubt he thinks to himself, this crowd is here for me until he sees the spit and the anger and the yelling directed at someone else, someone to his side. He turns and he sees a rabbi, he sees a carpenter who is bearing the weight of all of this wrath. I wonder what's going through his head in that moment. I wonder if upon his release, he, he followed at a distance. As Jesus was led carrying his cross to the hill of execution, I wonder as he looked at his convicted comrades to the left and right of Jesus, if he saw the place that was meant for him there in the middle. I wonder if he heard the words of Jesus as these murderers were surrounding him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. We don't know. We don't know what happens to Barabbas after his release, but what we do know is that for each of us, this picture of this substitution of, of Jesus for Barabbas is a picture of us. It is a picture in very practical terms of the gospel of grace. There was, there's a cross prepared for our sin and it was laid upon Jesus Christ so that we like Barabbas could bear the name son of the father daughter of the father so that we could receive adoption as sons and daughters again. Though in his sin, he was guilty. He was rightfully deserve, deserving of judgment under the law, unable to set himself free from the consequences of this life of sin and his decisions. An innocent man, the son of God took his place. Jesus Christ hung upon that cross. Jesus Christ bore the penalty of not just his sins, but the sins of anyone who would turn to him in belief that he has paid it all, that he has paid enough as our substitute as a pure lamb of sacrifice to atone for the sin of the world. This morning, some of you are, are like Pilate. You haven't really gotten this whole Jesus thing, but, but over time and maybe even today, your eyes are, are beginning to open to wonder who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this one standing before me? Who is this one appealing to me? And I believe that just like the Pilate, Jesus Christ is gently appealing to you to believe who he is and to respond to him, to turn to him. Some of you this morning, actually all of us, if you're in Christ, our invitation is, is to think of the cross and to consider what Jesus has done for us to see the way that he took our place, just like Barabbas, he took the place of a criminal, one who could not make himself righteous, one who could not set himself free. And Jesus did that willingly out of love for the world. What is our application this morning? What is our response? I don't know what it is for you but I believe that the Lord is saying something to you this morning. And, and the question is, what is he saying to you and how will you respond to it?